I'm Tim Ritter. I'm Nate Hansen. We're almost heretical. And this is how the Bible works. So after our last episode, which if you haven't listened to that, you should go listen to that. We started just kind of having a conversation and it ended up being the length of about an episode. So we wanted to share that with you. So here it is. Let's not even think podcast for a while. Like if you just think about it for a minute, what sense do you think, Nate, that this actually does matter? This can go, this could be for the show or not. Like, how would you answer that question? To me, it just comes back to the entire worldview of a lot of people is built off of what this Bible is saying. And so when you um, can point to maybe there's something else going on with why the words, people literally look at words. I've done this. I've taught it. Mm-hmm. Look at words in the Bible and uh, a sentence in the Bible in context. I'm not saying they, they take it out of context necessarily. Everyone's trying to put it in the context of what was the author actually talking about. But they, they take those words to then say, what decisions should I make with my life? Mm-hmm. Um, what decisions should I make in, in how I vote and how I think we should set up this country and the city that we live in and this um, you know, the community or all these kind of things? Um, how should I relate to the people that live next door to me and down the street from me and in the same city as me and all these things? What What am I supposed to be doing in my day, how should I spend my money? How should I, all these kind of things. I'm not saying that's a bad, that's a bad thing. If you have a religious text from God that tells you how to operate and live your life, if it, if it has, as one sentence in the Bible says, all you need for life and godliness, then that's probably a smart thing to do. But if this collection of scrolls and books and um, songs and all these things are doing something different, then that's really, really important to know. And it's also really, really difficult to come to grips with, um, I think. And so there's some people that will hear that and go, no, I'm there, I got you. And there's other people that will go like, don't do not do that. Don't don't you dare try to change the Bible, hmm. uh, what the Bible is for me. Yeah. So that was a lot, but that's sort of how I think it matters. Yeah. What I hear you saying is that uh, what we see all the time is we we cut words and and especially verses out of any literary structure or context, and we treat them as if uh, God sort of snuck those verses into the world, and if we have those verses, we have access to something divine. What we're seeing when we pay attention to these seams is that some verses weren't even a part of the original text and were added in order to function uh, mechanically as as literary connectors, uh, which should at least open our eyes to the, to the fact that all of this thing has has deeper layers of like function and um, literary usefulness like it's trying they're trying to do something uh literarily that may or may not have anything to do with with how we're using those uh those particular verses is that kind of like and and therefore if we can if we can zoom back and start to see this thing as like a a work of you know literary creative design uh rather than this random collection of 
almost magical words, right? Then that can basically start to change the way we even think about uh, decision making and hearing from God and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think the fear, and I can hear the devil's advocate in me saying, um, it, it sounds like you're trying to take away value for what the Bible is. Um, because a divine book where God has put in, in story form, in poems, in songs, in um, allegories, he's put in the words that he wanted us to know, that the, um, the ways to live life that he wanted us to follow, that's really valuable. And so if you're saying it's this like piece of art, are you just saying it's like this piece of art that kind of we can appreciate and, you know, it just doesn't sound, you know what I'm saying? Like if you, if you look at the scales, one looks really, really valuable mm -hmm. and seems like when we talk about a high view of scripture, that would be that view. And then the other one seems like you're just kind of knocking it. You're trying to knock it down a level and say, it's not any of that stuff. It's this like piece of art that a guy or a group of guys made not that long ago, um, a couple thousand years ago or whatever, they just crafted and cut up all these pieces and put them together. Um, it, it's cool, but I can see how someone would say you've made it not as valuable. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I get the picture of, you know, if, if the Bible is truly a mosaic, right. What we've been trained to do is like, take them all off of the wall and then sort through which ones make any kind of sense or strike any emotional chord with us and then like put those in our pockets. And then when times get rough or we need, you know, something to say to somebody or we get in a fight on social media, then we like pull out one of those pieces and we're like, hey, look at this. <laughs> and uh, and it may or may not have anything to do uh, with the overall purpose. If if the sense is, and I and I get this, I empathize with the sense is, if we're saying, hey, you no longer should be able to have those pieces in your pocket and pull them out and use them for what you want to use them for, uh, I get how that can be uh, feeling like there is a kind of importance or a kind of uh, usefulness uh, for for what to do with the Bible that we are saying it's not actually very useful for that or wasn't intended to be used for that or shouldn't be given that kind of importance. Uh, but I, but I do think we, we've said this in different ways before that presenting this thing as an intelligent whole, uh, where each piece is functioning at multiple layers to create an overall portrait and one that points to Jesus <laughs> actually is saying that the, the, the Bible itself is more important than a bunch of pieces to keep in your pocket and use for what you feel like using them for. But it's important in the way that it's claiming for itself to be important, uh, not the way that we've decided we want to use it. Just to be fair, like I don't think um, I was ever just trying to keep a collection of my favorite verses in my pocket to use for different things. I was trying to figure out the context of those verses within the book that they were in, um, within the larger whole. I think what's different is that this changes what the larger whole is, this scholarship that we're looking into it changes what that larger whole was intended to be. Um, and that's where I think the change is. Everyone's trying to figure out the context. I mean, everyone who's doing like decent reading of their Bible is trying to figure out the context um, of the, the, the verses inside of the book, inside of the whole. The difference is what is that whole, I think.
to be fair. Yeah, and, and I think a core question and, and one that I, this, this raises, I think, necessarily, is whether we should be talking about the Bible primarily in terms of, of how it was written or how it was edited or redacted in the sense that, uh, you know, who, who has the final say? And I think, again, to go back to the, to the metaphor, if in our head this is God's word and he chose what to be written, uh, then the ultimate essence of it is, is, uh, is in the writing uh, process. And I think, therefore, we're threatened by any sense of editing, right? We're threatened by the sense that you could cut some out or paste some somewhere else or have a later person add to the Torah, right? Uh, but if we actually start to see that compilation and uh, arrangement and literary restructuring and repurposing and passing things forward, if that redaction project, if that actually is the the last final and most important voice uh, in the overall whole, then I do think it, it forces us to step back and say that within any given text, right, even if we're looking for the context of the verse, it isn't in just that book, Exactly. Right. right. It's within the greater whole. And that should change how we have conversations, for instance, around con the conquest. Right. And what that says about genocide and violence and all that is we can understand a, a conquest command within the context of Joshua and Israel being told to purge the land of Canaanites. And it's still going to lead to a, a view of a really awful, evil God. Uh, or we can zoom even further back and read those stories within the greater context of a, a literary arrangement of texts. And at least, at least, that should get us to, to lighten our grip on the sense that the Bible is saying that God commanded genocide, right? If, if one text is giving us a story in which God commands genocide— is that one text the same as saying that is what the Bible says? Right. And is that line even, this is what the Bible says, is that how we should even be approaching this thing? Yeah. Hi, friends. Nate here. Real quick, if you have any questions for this series or any other episodes that we've done, you can ask those at almostheoretical.com. And then we're so thankful that a number of you help support our show. And if you want to do that as well, you can go to almostheoretical.com and click on the Give button in the top right-hand corner. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. 
We get emails from people all the time talking about how they're, you know, they'll they'll maybe word it as like their theology changed, their doctrine changed, or something like that. But I think the the heart of it is that how they're approaching the Bible has changed. And uh, I was just talking to someone a couple of days ago, and um, he was mentioning like nearly being uh, written off um, as a Christian by his family because of changing how he's approaching the Bible. Um, and I just feel like I've heard that story so many times since we started doing this podcast and even before it's, it's not so much that, yeah, your theology and your doctrine is changing that. Yes. That's like a byproduct, I guess, but it's mostly that how you're approaching and how you're viewing the Bible has changed. And that seems like one of the the biggest um, issues or barriers between, between people. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, I mean, in Christian world. Right, totally, right? totally. And yep. I think if you're one who spent good time in the church or grown up in the church, uh, yeah, I think that's why, you know, even if you disagree with, you know, some of the ideas that we're presenting or see it differently, you know, I, I might, uh, you know, change my views on, on some of these things slightly over the next few years. Uh, but it, it's worth thinking about, right? It's worth questioning because we are so deeply ingrained with seeing things a particular way. Uh, it's like that metaphor of you don't, if you're a fish in a, in a fishbowl, you don't know the water that you're swimming in. And there are a whole, there's a whole world of assumptions about what the Bible is, how the Bible does work, and what we're supposed to use it for that aren't from the Bible, right? Uh, there's there's a whole world of assumptions that are not biblical that are underlying what everybody uses to throw around what is and is not biblical, right? And so it, it's at least worth the reflection time to go back uh, and reconsider. And, and so like, you know, you talk about division and people seeing things differently. One of the issues of theology that has been the most divisive in my family has been whether or not Jesus and the Christian way is intrinsically committed to nonviolence or whether Jesus would carry a gun and promote AR-15s and self-defense. And I've had conversations at the Christmas table get nearly violent (laughs) uh, over this issue of violence and nonviolence. And so that's why I think, you know, take that example of say conquest or the laws in the old Testament. Right. And it matters immensely whether we believe that what the Bible is saying is here is your law. Here are your laws. Here is what God told Israel to do. Here is how violent God is. Or (laughs) whether the Bible is saying Look at how this story and this story connects to this story and this set of laws and these set of poems and this set of prayers to all point to Jesus. And then what does Jesus say? To lay down your arms and commit yourself uh, to not 
seeking vengeance against even your enemies, but loving your enemies uh, through nonviolence. In other words, like, does does Jesus's own life message teachings use the Old Testament as a set of books that we are to read literally as if they were all just gathered divine texts and placed in a library for us to listen to all of those texts. Or when he says that the whole thing was pointing to him, he meant that they were pieces in some sort of overall mosaic or portrait or quilt that was pointing beyond those texts to a kind of hero and that hero is him, and therefore his teachings on nonviolence show that God was not violent in decreeing genocide or asking his people to enact vengeance on their enemies, right? And, and those are huge questions, and we're not going to have all the answers. Uh, but at least being able to ask those questions, I think, can do... Uh, a real service in helping us move towards, if not common ground, then loosening our own uh, presuppositions in terms of you know what's biblical and what's unbiblical. I think that's why so many people love shows like this. It's not about us, but it's about a safe place to ask questions, a safe place to like think about things that they never thought about before um, and question and push back on things they never questioned and pushed back on before and don't have a safe place to do that. So and that's why we do this show because we hope to, to be there for you to show you that we're on this journey as well. And you're not alone. And there's so many other people thinking about this. And even though some people might make you feel completely crazy um, and like, you're not a Christian going to hell, <laughs> you know, there's a, a safe place of a lot of Christians here that will stand with you and go on this journey with you. So, and it's worth noting too, you know, that in this exploration, I think we're safe to say that we will continue to find that the Bible says more than we ever thought it did and less oftentimes than what we thought it does. That it also sometimes pushes in, you know, to use our our binary language, a more conservative direction. So uh, several years ago, I was really reading a bunch of stuff, critiques on New Testament, critiques on the Bible, and uh, really kind of went down this hole of like, you know, I don't know that I'm seeing the New Testament make any of the claims of the divinity that Jesus actually was God or God was Jesus, like the way we talk about it like that, saying Jesus was God, right? I'm not seeing that anywhere. And it seems like in many places, Jesus is uh, being treated as uh, as the ideal human who is then uh, exalted. Well, then I basically did some more uh, scholarship and started seeing deeper levels of connection between New Testament and Old at the, the level of like really subtle echoes and allusions. One of my favorites, uh, I found this through uh, scholar Richard Hayes, uh, was showing how the story of Jesus walking on the water. Remember, they, uh, uh, the disciples are in a boat and, J- and Jesus is walking on the water. And one of the, the gospels actually goes so far as to say that Jesus walked past them. <laughs> like he's just going out for a stroll, didn't even notice them and just passes them on the water. 
uh, I had never really stopped to pay attention to that. And Richard Hayes pointed out, oh, that's a very clear allusion to the book of Job and, uh, and even the Psalms, uh, in which is re- referencing God as sort of powerful over the waves. And, uh, and in the Septuagint, the language says he even trods on the seas. And so very clearly what I'm seeing is, oh, there's this echo that what it's doing is it's trying to be really careful, the the gospel writers, really careful about what they say and don't say about Jesus. So the way they were making claims to to Jesus as the incarnation of God was not by saying something so crude as that, but by overlapping stories where what we're reading about Jesus is what we've already read about God. And... So that actually basically pushed me back in a f- far more towards the traditional view of Christian theology uh, in terms of Christ and Christ's divinity and all that. There's just more here everywhere, right? And for one, I love that story because it's so quirky, uh, the one of Jesus walking on the water. Like, And, and for me, it stands out because the, <laughs> the audacity of a gospel writer to say not only that Jesus was walking on the sea, which is already like, what do we do with that, right? Like, I've never seen somebody walk on water, and I don't know if I believe that someone could or would. Uh, But then the audacity to say that he actually just walked right past him. (laughs) You know, like, uh, there's something just that it's almost comical, right? There's something so clearly literary about that line, right, that I don't think... I need to get stuck in the like, did historically, literally Jesus walk past their boat? Mm. Like, I don't think that's the point. <laughs> if I see the connection, the subtle literary design going on, I see, oh, you're wanting me to see these other passages. You're wanting me to see that that Jesus could do things that only God could do <laughs> and that the disciples were coming to, to realize that. Do I think Jesus physically walked on water or not? I don't know. But it's, it's changed the significance of that question for me. In other words, I can go to sleep at night not having an answer to that question and still having a rich Christian faith. There was a time in which my Christian faith was entirely dependent on having a particular answer to that particular question. Well, because it just sounds like, and that's what I guess that's what I mean. There's like two sets of ears, right? There's a set of ears that will hear that as like, wow, thank you, that like really... Um, empowers me to ask tough questions and to explore places I hadn't explored before. And there's another set of ears that just hear you saying, God's not capable of doing miracles. God's not capable of, of doing these like superhuman things to prove he's God. Um, You know what I mean? Like that sort of feels like there's this divide, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, totally. Yep. I get it. And that's why, you know, to, to go back to that example, we can find unity <laughs> to me pretty quickly with with two people asking the question do i think jesus literally walked on the water one person answering no one person answering yes and still find a whole bunch of rich overlap and shared faith where so long as we can see the greater meaning of that story and and the others like it in the bible right uh, how often, I mean, look at all the culture war battles over the age of the earth and whether the flood actually happened 
And not only you get to these just gross distortions of science and anti-intellectualism that's been really, really destructive for a lot of people, but you basically just end up fighting battles that I don't think the Bible ever asked you to fight. Like, I think most of those wars, you know, if you could resurrect any of the biblical authors or redactors, or if if Jesus himself would show up, uh, they all would think it equally laughable. Right, that that that's where we've we've picked our battles. Where I think we need to pick our battles is the kind of stuff we've gotten into on the show over gender and race and racism and sexism and patriarchy and homophobia, like ethics, where where we are using the Bible in ways that has placed Christians and the church in a position of moral inferiority, right? Where the church is perceived as being unjust in society. That is where I think we we really need to go back and do our homework, right? Uh, that is where I think we need to dig our heels in and say, like, no, <laughs> Jesus was certainly the most ethical, moral, loving human being that ever lived. If we believe him to be what what he claimed about himself and what others were attesting to him, uh, we have to fight to make sure that none of our theology, none of the way we do church, none of our Christianity is in any way unloving, unjust, or immoral to those around us, that is is something worth uh, digging our heels in. Making claims that uh, the earth is 5,000 years old, to me, to me, not only is it silly and foolish and leads to uh, a, a crippling uh, inability to, to learn and trust scientific discovery, but it's also just a, a fruitless battle. Right. Like it's it's bearing nothing but bad fruit uh, in that battle. So this wasn't another window into how the Bible worked, but it was a continued conversation that we were having. Um, and we wanted to share that with you. We'll be back uh, next time with another picture into how the Bible works. If you want to find out more about us or this series, you can do that at almost heretical dot com.